Hey, I'm Melies, the Story Collector, and this is The Courage 1000 Project, the show where we share personal stories of inner courage from all around the world to inspire you to find your own. In today's episode, we're talking with the gorgeous Tony Lontis. Now, Tony's going to share with us what it has taken to overcome a lifetime of bullying and horrendous domestic violence, including finding out the man she was due to be married to in just two short weeks had been sexually abusing her daughter. Now, Tony is a formidable woman with a heart of gold, and in sharing her story, she hopes to inspire you to find the resilient woman within yourself. Now, Tony is dedicated to helping women all over the world. She is a change maker dedicated to seeing change with how we view some of the toughest subjects, and she isn't afraid to speak up, and especially in her books, speaking presentations, and on her radio show, Radio Tony. Now, I would like to thank Tony for sponsoring this episode for us and a quick mention to her show. Radio Tony is a community of like-minded entrepreneurs who are dedicated to making their life journey inspirational, wanting to leave a legacy for others. For more information about the show, go to radiotony.com. And now on with the interview. I want to share my particular story and my life journey because I want to empower, inspire, and help people. I want them to look, I want to show up as my imperfect self and inspire others to do great things in their lives. Beautiful, beautiful. And and that started, of course, with the um, uh, publishing of my first book, um, Resilience. So that's it. Oh, I love that picture. My uh, son uh, is a photographer and we decided that we wanted to show uh, something beautiful blooming from something bad. So that photo was taken on our driveway, just in on the bitumen driveway. And he picked a whole heap of flowers from my lovely garden and just took photos. And that's the one that, that resonated most and it's just represents something beautiful rising from something dark and fractured and cracked and bad. So, and that's the story of my memoir. And what's your memoir all about then? Where does your story start? So my story started um, in, I guess when I was a child, I was born with um Uh, what they call a congenital birth defect. I had a tiny hole on the external part of my ear, which was joined by a tiny tube of tissue that led down to my parotid glands. And the problem with these particular birth defects is that they tend to uh, get infected often and badly. And so that's exactly what happened to me. So I had um, a number of subsequent surgeries and one of the last surgeries I had um, either the surgery or the rampant infection after the surgery knocked off my seventh facial nerve so your seventh facial nerve starts at the back of your brainstem and comes all the way down here across your face and across your eye and across your forehead and it's responsible for things like whistling chewing raising your eyebrow um, tear ducts smile etc etc so all through my childhood I had 
looked like I'd had a bad stroke. And as I aged, some of these nerves in my 40s started to regenerate. So this little dimple that I have here now only become apparent in my 40s. So I've had some healing from my facial nerve here, which I was told was, would never happen, but we now know that nerves have the ability to regenerate. But the nerves around my eye, in particular my left eye, are very sad and very lazy. And so when I'm tired, often this eye droops quite a bit. So um, I had a childhood plagued by very nasty bullying and of course if you're bullied and you have um, a facial deformity um, I couldn't smile so now I smile okay I'm quite I'm happy with my smile now but when as a, as a child I couldn't smile and smiling is your ability to communicate with people and if you can't smile people were never sure whether I was smiling or and so that leads to low self-esteem and low self-worth and all of those things that led into um and our family was quite dysfunctional um and so all of those things led to quite a fractured 20 year old and as i got into my 20s i made um some not okay decisions about my life and the partners so i was subjected to um a boyfriend who tried to uh, run me over and, and kill me effectively. Oh. And I was only oh, 20 at the time. And so there was no information about domestic violence. There was no uh, support. And so as most victims do, I went back to him and life continued its up and down path with him until I fell pregnant at, um, at 21 and I was living in the northern part of the state and I came home to be closer to um, family for the birth and um, he was going to come like we had not broken up at that stage I was just come home to a, a, a metropolitan centre to have the baby um, because far north Queensland wasn't the best place to you know birth a baby at that time um, in effect he missed the birth and then um, that set in place a whole heap of emotional stuff that we never dealt with, went back to um, the far north Queensland with a baby who was incredibly unsettled and had what I now know is really bad reflux and she cried 24 hours a day. So That's by the time I got to very hard and and he was a 20 year old 21 year old we sound like babies so like nowadays people are looking at having babies in their 30s but we were in our like early 20s we were babies um so (laughs) yes yes and so as a consequence he wanted to continue partying and i was at home with this beautiful little baby girl who um cried all the time and i had postnatal depression so put all of that together and it's and then something bad's going to happen so Mm. i was so tired and so exhausted i eventually succumbed to pressure to go home and have a break and try and get some sleep with the proviso that i'd have some sleep and rest get the baby settled come back again in the intervening time I found out that um, he had been uh, playing around and that, in fact, he had started living with someone else. 
Um, and I didn't find out about any of this until like he was still talking to me almost on a daily basis, still saying, I can't wait till you get back home, still saying, I love you dearly and et cetera, et cetera. So there was that. And I was, when the breakup happened, I was heartbroken and um, destroyed and in lots of pain. So then um, I went to live with my parents, which has never best idea for adults <laughs> yes, especially not with a baby <laughs> yeah yeah so there was all of that family dysfunction again coming into the fore um and then along came um a man that i dated previously and who my parents thought were perfect for me and who the rest of the family loved so take this fractured uh, low self-esteem 21 year old with a baby who felt ashamed to be a single mother. Uh, the, uh, I felt completely ashamed that I was unmarried and then I'd had a baby out of wedlock. So back in that day, that's how I felt. I, I'm not sure that it's so bad now. I'm sure I would hope that we're much more accepting of our yeah, single mothers. Around single mothers is definitely lifted. Oh, and I, I'm glad to hear that, but I felt the stigma and I felt ashamed. And so as a consequence, I married the first guy I come along. So broke up with my daughter's um, father in the May, uh, met and re-engaged with an ex-boyfriend within um, a few months, was engaged in the November of the same year and married in the subsequent January again that was fast yeah 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 and that was me trying to make the world right and trying to do what everyone wanted me to do and succumbing to pressure and not listening to my gut and my own voice took me a long time to rely on my own feelings it took me a long time to listen to my gut so straight into a marriage uh that was not great to begin with so um, in essence, we had a good friendship, but that was about it. And that's what it should have stayed as a good friendship and a good support system. Um, fell pregnant. Um, second baby was a really traumatic pregnancy. Uh, I had to go to hospital at 28 weeks and because I had a condition called polyhydramnius. Um, emergency caesarean section where my son nearly died and I nearly died and yeah, yeah and so on and so forth. Um, marriage continued to be very rocky. He uh, had lots of his own issues and then started to drink and drink a lot. Um, we moved a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, no, bad idea, bad idea. Great bloke, uh, would have been great to have a friendship with, but not marriage material for me or for him. Um, cut forward to... Um, we broke up and then by that stage I was in my late twenties and heading into my thirties and I just kept making those bad decisions. Number of verbally abusive relationships that took me a long time to walk away because each time I thought that I was failing when in fact, if I had listened to my inner voice earlier, then I would have realized before things got too far along that these were not the men that I, that were right for me. Yeah. They were not good decisions. Um, great 
great blokes probably with different women but not for me Um, and then came the worst relationship of my life so I met um, after again after breaking up with someone very quickly met someone who would turn out to be a monster in disguise and if that's something that I can impart to young women is you are vulnerable and you remain vulnerable for an extended period of time after traumatic experiences. And we need to recognize and accept our vulnerability and do lots of things that protect us, our family and our lives in that stage. Because I'm telling you that men who have a capacity for evil have vulnerability detectors and they zoom in and they find those vulnerabilities and they tell you what you want to hear, do what you need them to do. And none of it is real. Mm-hmm. And so uh, getting into that story, I thought that this man was the man of my dreams. I thought, and I did love him dearly. And on the surface, he did all those wonderful things. He was supportive. He was encouraging. He was loving and he was a good friend. However, what was going on in the background was pure evil. Mm. So uh, two weeks before I was about to marry this man, my then 18-year-old daughter disclosed to me that she had been sex- uh, sexually abused by him. Wow. And that it had been going on for a number of years. And at that point, my whole world dissolved completely. Um, I, the moment that she told me, I uh, cut off all contact with him and we went to the police and then started the most traumatic 10 years of my life. So I had, um, during that time, I had a number of breakdowns, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, all the while trying to make sure that my daughter survived the um, ramifications of her abuse. And as a nurse, I knew, statistically speaking, that the odds were not good, that she would be okay. And I put all my stuff aside to make sure she was okay so she went through the whole gamut of uh ramifications so cocaine abuse uh suicide attempts again and again and again um drinking promiscuous all that stuff that is involved with those types of um crimes and then uh the judicial system which is just diabolical. So she, we went through the system, charges were laid, went to court, he was found guilty, he went to jail, and then he appealed. And three Supreme Court judges let him out. Wow. How did that affect you guys? That was the precursor to my daughter's absolute downward spiral so um going through the court system is horrendous it re-traumatizes victims it's to have to 
she was on the stand for seven, about seven hours. Um, she came off the stand, collapsed on the floor, curled in the fetal position and just rocked. And I wasn't allowed to go to her because I was the next person on the stand. And they, the court system views, uh, they, they talk about collaboration. So you have to be, even though we were living together on the day at the court, I wasn't allowed to go and, and comfort her or see that she was okay. I had to walk straight into the courtroom and go on the stand myself. And so what defence lawyers do to you on that stand is criminal in itself. So my whole life was exposed. I had done nothing wrong. But my sex life, my life, my life um, um, choices, every decision I had ever made, he pulled apart. And it was just diabolical to the point where I was crying uncontrollably, look, looking at the judge and begging him to stop this man with his attack. Yeah. And in the end, he put his hand up and said, that's enough now. And the jury were, the women in the jury were sobbing. So that's my experience. And I wasn't allowed to see what my daughter experienced, but I can imagine that it was similar. That's a judicial system. So you go through that, you get a guilty verdict. And the worst part of that was when the jurors all fly back into the courtroom and you're standing there waiting while the judge uh, reads the verdict before he reads it out. And this man turned to me and burst into tears and said, I'll stop this now. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And I was just horrified that because at that stage I still cared about this man. I hadn't dealt with any of my stuff yet. And the way that he looked at me, it will haunt me forever. Now he deserved to go to jail and he deserved everything that he got. But in that moment, I felt sorry for him. And that's the dichotomy of, of the judicial system and and what anyone faces. Um, so yes, once, once he went to jail and then there was an appeal and he got out and that was the start of my daughter's downward spiral because she just lost all hope. She thought that at the end of the trial with a guilty verdict, at least she was, um, vindicated and, and, and started to feel good about herself. But when they let him out, that was just bad, really bad. So, so how um, did you overcome all this? I determined very early on that a mother's unconditional love can heal and help. And I just hung on to that. So I just kept telling her, um, no matter what she did, no matter how she treated me and, and she treated me badly because I was the one person that stuck by her. I was the one person that didn't leave her. Everyone else did. Everyone else got sick of her behaviour because it was hard to put up with. Everyone else got sick of trying to help her and I just determined that I was on this earth to be her mum and I was the only person that could do it and I'm stubborn. So I stubbornly hung in there and tried to help her. So that was in the form of talking to her, being hard on her, insisting she did certain things. Um, and at one stage when she was in a really bad space with, um, 
associations with bikies and cocaine and drinking and partying and all the stuff that's so self-destructed. It got to the point where um, I sat her down and at that stage I had a wonderful man in my life and we sat down and said to her, okay, you've burned all your bridges. If you don't stop drug taking, if you don't stop your association with these people, then we have no option but to put you out of the house. And it was her last place that she could stay. It was her last line of help and hope. And at that moment, she, I think she suddenly realised, oh, okay, mum's not giving up. No matter what I do, she's still going to kick my butt and try and help me. And that was the beginning of her starting to get help. So that we set in place a contract with her. We wrote down things like, you must not take drugs. You must not associate with this. You must get yourself a job. You must start working. You must go and see a counsellor. So up until that point, her therapy had been sporadic. And this was about four, four or five years down the track. And part of the contract was she had to start seeing a therapist weekly. And that was the beginning of her getting better. And so we're now another seven years down the track. And I have the most beautiful daughter. She still has her struggles. There's always going to be triggers. There's always panic, panic attacks and she has very bad anxiety. But for all the things that we've been through, we have a wonderful relationship and I'm really, really proud of that because according to statistics, there is a huge percentage of mothers who don't believe their children when they tell them their story. Oh. And according to the child protection unit that we were involved with, of all the things I'd done wrong up to that point in time, on that day, when she told me I did everything right. So I believed her. I was empathetic. I was sympathetic and supportive. I stopped contact with him. I moved to protect her and I called the police. And apparently those are all the things that you need to do. I didn't know that at the time. I'd done lots and lots of research around all of this since then. Yeah. And in trying to get help for my daughter and heal her, I've found out all these things and um, that's been the saving of her. So she's still, she'll, and that's the thing about those crimes. She'll have a lifetime of dealing with that. And every now and then she'll still have um, the night terrors where um, some of her suppressed memories are starting to come up. Um, so she, her evidence was from a point in time and the child protection unit and her psychologists and psychiatrists believe that the abuse started earlier than that. But as you probably realise, um, a young brain does everything to protect that brain from trauma that they don't understand and can't deal with. Yeah. And it gets put back into a subconscious box in the back of your brain to be dealt with. Um, and I believe that's, as she gets better, some of that stuff starts coming up. So it'll be a lifelong process for her, but she's in a good place. Um, we now have a grandson um, and uh, so she's a single mother. So life is hard for her, but she's doing really, really well. 
So that's essentially what my memoir, Resilience, is about, all of that, that and how we got through it and that life is good. And, and I met, after all of that trauma, an amazingly wonderful, supportive man. And I want to show women that there are still good men out there and that can be supportive. But um, I he had the hardest time getting to know me. Like he, I asked hard questions. I gave him a hard time and he just stood there and was wonderful. And he's my best friend now and completely supportive of my writing and radio and everything that I do. And part of my book is dedicated to him and, and his love, which has helped me be the relatively whole imperfect me that I am now. So um, going forward, it's about getting the book out there so that the right people read it so that they get the help and inspiration that they need. It's about building um, radio, excuse me, the radio show as a platform for people's like what you're doing, Melia, for people's stories to be heard and for people to gain that knowledge about all sorts of things, particularly I'm particularly passionate about women's rights, uh, child abuse, domestic violence, um, sexual abuse, consent. Those are like my key things that I feel that we need to be having really rough, raw conversations about that people need information and education about those things i believe that education and education of women um, is so important so that's the big thing that i did at the very beginning of of my journey i started on a self-discovery and self-education path and i just keep going i just keep going because the more knowledge you have the more um impact and uh, information you can impart and help people if it's just one thing i say that helps that one woman listening get out of that situation and start her healing and start empowering her to be the best person she can be because no one else can be Millie, no one else can be tony no one else can do what I do. No one else has my story. There's lots of similar stories. There's lots of people doing similar things, but only you can do you. And by doing you, you give the world a unique opportunity wow. and draw those people that need to hear you and what you say to you. And so that's what I do now is, and I'm so blessed to be able to connect with the most amazing people like yourself, Melly. like that's just, that's for me, that blesses my soul that um, enables us to form the basis of our friendship and, and going forward, we have the opportunity to, to, to collaborate and support each other. And I've now got so many of those wonderful people in my life that I can then point others to them and say, Hey, go talk to this person. I think she's got a great platform for you to tell your story and, and so on and so forth. I just, I believe in people's stories and I believe in the power of healing in telling your story. Lots of these bad things that happen they thrive because of secrecy. And once you speak out your story, speak out your truth, they have less power and that brings healing. 
That's just so that's beautiful. Essentially, what I do, um, I hope to build a bit of a speaking career as well. But I'm slowly like I've only been doing this since January, so I'm like you, and I'm just doing what I do intuitively and. Uh, and wonderfully the universe keeps bringing these beautiful people to connect with and I'll just keep following that I'm just connecting with the people that the universe sends me knowing that there's a greater purpose in doing that and just being me and knowing that what I say is important enough to go out to the world further so and it will be the same with you Millie Definitely, definitely. So through this whole journey, because I'm just in awe of you at the moment. Oh, <laughs> thank you. What is your definition of courage? To overcome all of that and be where you are now, you must have a very grounded sense of what that word is. Yes. I. One blessing in my life is essentially that I'm pretty fearless. So I've done lots of things that other people go, oh my God, I couldn't do that. And I've just done it really without thinking. So do I feel fear? Yes, I do. Did I feel fear about talking about my secrets in my book? Absolutely. Do I feel fear when I go on my radio show? Absolutely. Do I get scared every time I talk to someone new? Absolutely. But I do it anyway because my core value is courage and by me sticking to one of my core values of courage that will um, impassion other people if they see me do it that might be enough for that woman to get out of that situation it might be enough for that child to tell someone that they're being abused it might be enough for someone to say hey if she did it, I can write that book. If I get up on stage, it might be enough for someone to say, hey, I can do that too. And, and that's, that's what I want the world to know, that, that having courage doesn't mean you don't feel fear, but it means that you feel it and you're, um, you believe in it so strongly that you do it anyway. Um, and yeah, courage is my one of my core foundations. I've been doing a lot of listening and reading um, from the work of Brene Brown, and her yes, and her the Daring Greatly book has been just wonderful for me to read and listen to. And her one of her quotes from uh, Theodore Roosevelt, the the Daring Greatly Men in the Arena, I think that and I speak that like all the time because it as with Brene one of her core values is is courage and the more of us that are car that show courage the more of us that are courageous the better the world will be and I feel passionately that women will quietly and courageously move through the world and change things. Do you feel you are destined to make an impact in this world, but are struggling to find the courage to share your story? Jump over to mellies.com.au for free training, presentations and videos, or simply stay tuned for the next episode of The Courage 1000 Project.